You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Good evening, everyone. Again, welcome to Camp Meeting. Tonight we continue our study in the three angels' messages. And tonight we're going to be looking at a very special subject, one that is unique unique to the Adventist movement. You can find aspects of the Adventist message in different groups, different individuals. Uh, There's different groups that believe in the Sabbath and understand uh, certain things related to Bible prophecy. But when it comes to this particular truth that we find in the first angel's message, it is unique. There is no other group in the world that is preaching, teaching, proclaiming this Judgment Hour message. And that is going to be our focus, our study this evening. So with that, let's get right to it. There's a lot that we want to cover. We're going to start then in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. We spoke about the everlasting gospel last night, which is verse 6. But now we're getting into the very essence of the message. Talking about the first angel, it says, saying with a loud voice. The loud voice indicates that the message will be proclaimed so that all will be able to hear the message. Now, there's something interesting to note when you look at the three angels' messages. You'll see that the first angel's message here in verse 7 is proclaimed with what kind of a voice? With a loud voice. You'll also notice that the third angel's message, which talks about if anyone worships the beast or his image or sees his mark and his foid or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, the most fearful warning that you can find anywhere in Scripture, the third angel's message, it's proclaimed with a loud voice. So the first angel's message is with a loud voice. The third angel's message is with a loud voice. But have you ever noticed the voice of the second angel? The second angel says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But in Revelation chapter 14, the second angel's message is not proclaimed with a loud voice. It's interesting. What is interesting is that when you get to Revelation chapter 18 and you have this fourth angel coming down from heaven and the earth is illuminated with his glory, it says he cries mightily with a strong voice or a loud voice, Babylon is fallen, he's fallen. He repeats the second angel's message and adds some additional details. So one day while studying this, I came across that and I wondered why why is the first angel's message proclaimed with a loud voice and the third angel's message proclaimed with a loud voice, but the second angel says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. (laughs) Where's the loud voice? I mean, the first angel's got a loud voice, the third angel, but the second angel just announces that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Well, if you want to know the reason to that, You're going to have to come back tomorrow evening, all right? We'll give you the answer. I started thinking, wait a minute, I can't tell you that just yet. That's connected with the second angel, so I better wait on that. So that's just a teaser. You've got to come back tomorrow, and we'll tell you why the second angel doesn't have a loud voice. It's kind of interesting. Okay, but the first angel does. And what does the first angel say? He begins with the two words, fear God. Now, to fear God is to reverence God, and it is to keep his commandments. If you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, notice the connection between keeping God's commandment and the judgment. Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. 
Fear God and keep his commandments. To fear God is to reverence God, to worship him, to respect him. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. It's interesting that we find here in Ecclesiastes, fearing God, keeping his commandments, judgment. You get to the first angel's message, you find fear God, the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water, which ties in with the fourth commandment. So we see a parallel here in the Old Testament, also talking about this first angel's message. To fear God is to obey God, it's to keep his commandments. In the book Great Controversy, page 436, it says, without obedience to his commandments, no worship can be pleasing to God. Jesus said of the religious leaders of his day, in vain they worship me, teaching for commandments the doctrines of men. So the worship that sets aside God's commandments are meaningless in heaven's eyes. Then the verse goes on and says, fear God and give glory to him. To give glory to God is to manifest the principles of God's character in all that we do. Amen. How do we give glory to God? We reveal his character. And how is that? Well, the Bible tells in Galatians chapter 5, 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So next time somebody irritates you, and stirs up some angry feelings, but instead of giving in to that anger, you respond with kindness, you are giving glory to God. That's what it means to give glory to God. In our everyday life, in our interaction with other people, in the things we say, in the things we do, are we responding with the fruit of the Spirit? And if we are, we are giving God glory. Every single one of us are called to give God glory. We find this statement in Signs of the Times, published back in 1892. To give God glory is to reveal his character in our own, and thus make him known. And in whatever way we make known the Father or the Son, we glorify God. So it's in the revelation of the fruit of the Spirit in our life that we are giving God glory. The next part of the verse says, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, this is where we're going to end our study of verse 7. The rest of our time together, we're going to focus on this important subject of the judgment, the judgment hour. We'll pick up tomorrow evening with uh, worshiping the Creator. The proclamation of the everlasting gospel gives every person an opportunity to respond to the offer of salvation the judgment makes manifest each person's response. This end-time judgment is further described for us in Daniel chapter 7. So we're going to be looking at some familiar verses, but very important verses this evening. Daniel chapter 7, starting verse 9, Daniel writes, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now, who is the Ancient of Days? That's God the Father, because later in the same chapter, uh, Daniel talks about one likened to the Son of Man, and we know that's a reference to Jesus. So the Ancient of Days here is God the Father. 
It says, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Then it goes on in verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. So here in Daniel chapter 7, we're introduced to a heavenly judgment scene. And at this point in the verse, what we see is that the Ancient of Days, God the Father, moves from one place to another place where he is seated. All the angels are present, and there are books that are opened, and there is a judgment that begins. Well, if we keep reading a few verses down in verse 13, we're introduced to the second very important individual in this judgment. Verse 13 says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like unto the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came with the clouds of heaven. The first time I read this verse, I thought, oh, it's talking about the second coming of Jesus. It's talking about Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven. But wait a minute, it's not Jesus coming to the earth, but where is Jesus going? The rest of the verse says, he came with the clouds of heaven and he came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. So who do you suppose those clouds represent? It's a cloud of angels. It's the angels. When Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven, he's coming with all of his angels. So here what's described here in Daniel chapter 7 is God the Father, the ancient of days, moves from the holy place into the most holy place, and we'll look at a few verses in that in just a minute. He is seated in the most holy place. The judgment is about to begin, and then Jesus is brought before the Father, and the angels come with Jesus, and they're all present for this heavenly judgment scene. At the conclusion of this judgment scene, we find in verse 14, and there was given him, that's Jesus, dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is that which shall not be destroyed. So we have a judgment scene. The Ancient of Days, God the Father is seated. The books are open. Jesus comes in before him. Some kind of cleansing or judgment occurs. At the end of that, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord, and after the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord, then Jesus will remove his priestly robe, he'll put on his kingly robe, and Jesus comes back to claim his kingdoms. He comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. So that's the sequence of things that's been described here in Daniel chapter 7. Now, here's an important verse in Psalm 77 verse 13. It says, Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Now, that verse can mean two things. Number one, the way that we get to God is revealed in the sanctuary through the sacrifice, through the intercessory work of the priest. It's as if you move from the courtyard into the holy place and then into the most holy place. But it's not only how we ought to come to God, but God's plan of redemption, what God does, your way, O Lord, God's way is revealed in the sanctuary. The work that God does to save us is revealed in the sanctuary. Now, of course, when we talk about the sanctuary, we know that there was the earthly sanctuary, and uh, God was told, or God told Moses, to build the earthly tabernacle according to the pattern that was shown him in the mount. So that would have been the heavenly sanctuary 
that Moses saw, and a miniature of the heavenly was constructed, and that was the earthly. And the sanctuary is composed of three parts. You had the courtyard area, and there were two articles of furniture in the courtyard. You had the altar of, of sacrifice, and then just before you entered into the first compartment, there was a, a basin with water, and the priest would wash his hands and his feet before going into the first compartment of the sanctuary. That's called the holy place, right? And how many articles of furniture do we find in the first compartment of the sanctuary? There were three articles of furniture, and if you walked in through the, through the curtain into the first compartment on your right-hand side, what article of furniture would you see? You would see the table of showbread. And how many stacks of bread would be on the table? There would be a total of 12 loaves, but there would be on two stacks, side by side. We'll come back to that. Directly in front of the table of showbread or across from it, what article of furniture would then be on your left? It would be the seven-branched candlestick, and it was an oil lamp that provided the light. And then if you walk towards the veil, separating the holy from the most holy place, what article of furniture would you find right before the veil? That would be the altar of incense, where the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice, and he'd put on the horns of the altar. And then, of course, there was the incense that would waft up, and it would go over the veil. And if we were the high priest, on the Day of Atonement, we could open that veil, and we could step into the most holy place. And there was only one article of furniture in the most holy place, and what was that? The Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had different parts, of course, you had the golden box, but there was a lid on that box that had a special name. What was the name of the lid? It was called the mercy, the mercy seat. Interesting. And then on either side of the mercy seat or coming up on the mercy seat, there were two covering angels or cherubs that were on either side. Of course, what was inside the box? What was in the ark? The Ten Commandments, right? The foundation of God's government. Ten Commandments founded upon the principle of love for God and love for our fellow man. Now, the verse here says that God's way is in the sanctuary. When Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven to begin his high priestly ministry for us, did Jesus begin his ministry in the first compartment, the holy place, or in the most holy place, in 31 AD, when Jesus ascended to heaven. He began his ministry in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary. Why? Because during the year, the priest would minister in the first compartment. And it was only on the Day of Atonement that the priest would enter into the most holy place. He'd only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Yom Kippur. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, he began his ministry in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary. But wait a minute. I read somewhere that Paul says that when Jesus ascended on high, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. And people sometimes say to Adventists, how can you say that Jesus, when he ascended in heaven or to heaven, he began his ministry in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary, if the Bible tells us that when Jesus ascended on high, he was seated at the right hand of his Father. He couldn't have been in the first compartment. He would have had to have been in the second compartment. 
Now, wait a minute. We're assuming with that logic that God the Father was in the most holy place when Jesus ascended to heaven in 31 AD. Could it be that God the Father and the Son were in the first compartment and Jesus began his high priestly ministry seated at the side of his Father in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary? And I think the answer is yes. And let me tell you why. When you begin studying the book of Revelation, the very first introduction in Revelation chapter 1, it describes Jesus standing amongst seven branched candlesticks. Amongst the candlesticks. Where would you find the candlesticks? Would they be in the first compartment or the second compartment? They're in the first compartment. Then when you get to Revelation chapter 4, you have a description of the heavenly throne room. It describes God the Father seated upon his throne. It talks about the four living creatures surrounding his throne. There is a rainbow about God's throne. And the 24 elders are around God's throne. And there are seven burning lamps of fire right in front of God's throne. Jesus is not there yet. Jesus does not appear until Revelation chapter 5, where Jesus appears before his Father, and he is as a lamb as it had been slain. So chapter 4 describes the heavenly throne room before Jesus is officially beginning his work as a high priest. That takes place in chapter 5. Now, it's interesting that in chapter 4, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, is seated on his throne, and burning before him are seven lamps of fire, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. Well, if we take that and we apply that to the sanctuary, where is God the Father seated in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary? What article of furniture is facing the seven-branch candlestick? The table of showbread. You see, the table of showbread in the first compartment is a symbol of God's throne, just as the Ark of the Covenant in the second compartment is a symbol of God's throne. And isn't it interesting that you have two stacks of bread placed side by side, and the Bible tells us that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he was seated at the right hand of the Father on his throne. So what's described in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is really an event that takes place in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary. So as Adventists, we can say that, yes, Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, was seated at the right hand of the Father, but the Father was in the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary. And then you go to Daniel chapter 7, and it's very clear that at some point, God the Father goes from the holy place into the most holy place. He is seated, and the books are open and then Jesus is brought in before the Father. Does that make sense? Okay, take a look at this statement that comes to us from early writings. Makes it clear, page 55. She says, I saw the Father rise from the throne, and in a flaming chariot go into the Holy of Holies within the veil and sit down. So where would that place the Father before he goes into the Holy of Holies? It must be the holy place. Then it goes on, then Jesus rose up from the throne. Incidentally, the th same throne. And a cloudy, with a, then a cloudy chariot with wheels like flaming fire surrounded by angels came to where Jesus was. He stepped into the chariot and was born to the holiest where the Father sat. There I beheld Jesus, a great high priest, standing before the Father. 
So it's quite clear from Revelation 4 and 5, plus Daniel 7, plus what we read here in early writings, that yes, there was a transition that took place in heaven. God the Father goes from the holy to the most holy place, and then Jesus is brought before the Father by the angels for a special work of cleansing or judgment. Now, Psalm 11, verse 4 and 5 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. Which group is being tested in this verse? The righteous. The judgment refers to the righteous. But the wicked and, those, um, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So this judgment that's described here is a judgment that is connected with the righteous, not the wicked. The wicked, their judgment comes later on. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, and this according to the fruit of his doing. According to Revelation chapter 22, the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes again, he is bringing his reward with him to give to every man according to his works. Here, it tells us that there is a judgment that takes place before Jesus comes if he's going to give according to their works. Now, this judgment only involves the righteous. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they are the ones who are judged or tested, as the Bible puts it, or cleansed, as you get to Revelation chapter uh, Daniel 8.14 and Revelation 11. talks about a cleansing or a measuring or a judging the result of which is the rewards come when we get to heaven. Not everyone in heaven gets the same reward. Now, all of us get eternal life, and for me, that's enough. Just get me into the kingdom. I'm happy. And yet God is going to reward people based upon their commitment and their work for him. Because God is a God of justice. He's a God of fairness. Okay. It is the investigative or this pre-advent judgment that is announced by the first angel of Revelation chapter 14, and it is foretold in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8 verse 14. Now here is a great prophecy that we as Adventists should know by heart and understand what it means. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be what? Shall be cleansed. Now, as mentioned before, we have the earthly sanctuary or the tabernacle, which is a pattern of the heavenly. But let me ask you, according to the Bible, how many different types of sanctuaries or temples or tabernacle, it's all the same thing, how many types of sanctuaries do we find in the Bible? How many kinds? Five. Let's see if we can figure it out. Well, we've got the heavenly, right? Are we all clear on the heavenly? Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about the heavenly sanctuary. We've got the earthly, and the earthly is the one that God told Moses to build in, in the wilderness. That one was eventually replaced by Solomon, known as Solomon's temple. That one was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt after the captivity. That was the temple that Jesus entered, and that one was eventually destroyed in 70 AD. So that's two temples so far, two sanctuaries, the heavenly and the earthly. But wait, there's three more. Jesus said to the people in his day, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Was he talking about the building in Jerusalem? No, because they said, boy, it's taken us over 40 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. And then the Bible says he spoke of his body. So that's the third temple. Are you with me? 
The heavenly, the earthly, the third one is Jesus. What about the fourth one? The Bible says, no, you're not. No, you're not that your body is the temple of God if the Holy Spirit is within you. So you've got the heavenly, you've got the earthly, you've got Jesus, you've got the individual. And what do you suppose the fifth one is? Paul says, don't you realize, don't you know that you're all living stones put together on Jesus, the cornerstone, and you form the temple of God. We're the temple of God. So the church is the temple of God. You've got the heavenly, the earthly, Jesus, the individual, and the church. Now here's the question. What is the purpose of the sanctuary? What was the reason that God gave to Moses when he said, build me a sanctuary? Why did God want Moses to build a sanctuary? So that I might be able to dwell amongst my people. Why did God need a sanctuary in order for him to dwell amongst his people? What would have happened if God appeared in the camp of Israel in all his glory without the sanctuary covering his glory? Well, they would have been destroyed, right? Because sin can't be in the presence of God. So the purpose of the sanctuary, don't miss this point, the purpose of the sanctuary is to take care of the sin problem so that God can dwell amongst his people. And that's why in the sanctuary you had the sacrifice of the lamb, you had the ministry of the priest. All of that was to take care of the sin problem so that God could dwell amongst his people. Does that make sense? Now, why did Jesus come to the earth? Jesus came to the earth. He veiled his divinity with humanity for what reason? To take care of the sin problem. He bore our sins. He died in our place. He rose. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us righteousness. Jesus came to take care of the sin problem so that we can dwell with him, so that we can be in his presence. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and lives to cleanse us from sin so that we can dwell in the presence of God? Amen? Amen. What's the purpose of the church in the world today? Isn't the purpose of the church to preach and proclaim the everlasting gospel, the good news of salvation, the good news of Jesus, so that the sin problem can be taken care of and people can dwell in the presence of God? What is the purpose of the heavenly sanctuary? The purpose of the heavenly sanctuary is to take care of the sin problem in the universe. And eventually when that is done, Satan and sinners will be no more. The universe will be pure and clean. And forever, the entire intelligent beings of the universe will be safe and secure from sin. Isn't it interesting to note that we know that the sanctuary is in heaven now. And we know that during the 1,000 years of the millennium, the sanctuary is going to be in heaven and the redeemed are going to be able to enter into the sanctuary there in heaven. But have you ever noticed in Revelation, after the earth is recreated and John describes the new Jerusalem, he says, I saw there was no temple therein. Have you noticed that verse before? It's there. Why is there no temple needed in the new Jerusalem? Because the sin problem is finally taken care of. Does that make sense? And we can dwell in the presence of God. So the purpose of the sanctuary is to prepare a people, a group of people, a group of redeemed, who will be able to stand on the sea of glass and look into the face of God and hear God sing for joy. That's the purpose of the sanctuary. 
to take care of the sin problem. Now, our verse that we read, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. This cleansing of the sanctuary isn't just an earthly sanctuary. It's not just the heavenly sanctuary, but it's a cleansing of the individual. It's the cleansing of the church. It's a cleansing throughout all of these different sanctuaries that we spoke about. Okay, well, let's take a look at how this all works. Now, we're going to lay a little bit of a foundation, and hopefully this is familiar to you. I've summarized the verses because we don't have time to read through all of it. But Daniel, of course, begins in Daniel chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. And in the dream, he sees this giant image made up of these different metals. And uh, Daniel comes before the king and is explaining the meaning of the dream. In Daniel chapter 2, from 35 to 45, it says, You are the head of gold. Daniel's talking to the king. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. That's the chest and arms of silver representing Medo-Persia. Then a third, a kingdom of bronze, we know that to be Greece, shall rule over the earth. And a fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, symbolizing Rome. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. That represents Western Europe, even as we have it today. Some of the nations are strong, some of the nations are weak. But then he goes on and says, And in the days of these kings, speaking of today, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Who does that stone represent? It represents Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to the people? He said to his disciples, he said, If you fall on this stone, you will be broken. But woe unto the one upon whom it falls, for it will grind him to powder. Remember that verse? Jesus is actually getting that from Daniel chapter 2. He's talking about the second coming and the judgment that comes upon the wicked. Now, that's Daniel 2. Of course, we have the parallel of that in Daniel chapter 7. This is the review. There are four beasts in Daniel 7. The first is like a lion, representing Babylon. The second is like a bear. The third is like a leopard. The fourth is this dreadfully strong beast that has iron teeth. And of course, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, we're all together there. And then the ten horns represent divided Western Europe. It's the feet of iron and clay in Daniel chapter 2. So we have a parallel. And then in Daniel 8, some additional, Daniel 7 rather, some additional details is given concerning to the sequence of these events. And verse 8 says, Daniel 7 verse 8, I was considering the horns, that's the ten horns, and then there was another horn, a little one coming up amongst them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And in this horn there were eyes as the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now we understand that that little horn power represents the papal system or the papal power that was established in 538 and continued to rule until 1798. The little horn did arise by uprooting three other horns, the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Heruli. So here we have Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, the rise of the papacy. Okay? That's what we see so far. Now, when we go to chapter 8, or rather still in chapter 7, verse 8, he's talking about this little horn power. And he says, I was watching, and the same horn was making war with the saints and prevailing against them. That's the 1260 years of papal supremacy. How long, don't miss this, how long would that little horn power War against God's people and war against the truth. Well, verse 22 of Daniel 7 says, Until 
the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints. Now, we just read a little bit earlier about the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father. And when it says the Ancient of Days is come, it's not talking about God the Father coming here, but it's talking about God the Father going from the holy into the most holy place for a judgment. Notice what it says. Until the Ancient of Days is come and judgment was made in favor of the saints. Now, when that happens, at the conclusion of that judgment, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord, and Jesus comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. It says, until judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. When do the saints possess the kingdom? Not until the second coming of Christ, because that's when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord. Now, of course, there are two parts to the kingdom of heaven. There is the kingdom of grace, and by God's grace, we can all be citizens of the kingdom of grace. But the kingdom of glory does not take place until Jesus comes again. So, what do we see in Daniel so far? Here is a little chart, and you'll see it on the screen. You've got these various kingdoms arising. Daniel 2 talks about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, the papal power in chapter 7, and the judgment is introduced... In chapter 7, that's the Ancient of Days going to the most holy place and the book's been opened. So that's the sequence that we have. Now when we get to Daniel chapter 8, some additional details are added to the sequence that we find. Of course, Daniel chapter 8 talks about a ram with two horns and a goat with one notable horn between his eyes. The ram represents Medo-Persia and the goat represents the kingdom of Greece. But after Greece, another horn would come we read in Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, and out of one of these came a fourth, a little horn. Now, just for our theologians there, when it talks about an out of one of them, it's not referring to the horns, it's referring to one of the four points of the compass that's referenced in the previous verse. But that, of course, represents Rome, first in its pagan form and then in its papal form. Because papal Rome is just an extension, biblically speaking, from pagan Rome, as you know if you studied history. And it talks about this horn getting strong from towards the south, towards the east, towards the pleasant land. And then it goes on in verse 10 and says, And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, cast down some of the hosts and the stars to the ground, and stamped upon them. It was a persecuting power. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, all of the things that's been described here in Daniel chapter 8 takes place after 70 AD. It's after the earthly temple is already destroyed. So when it says the place of his sanctuary is cast down, what the Roman church did was to direct people's attention away from the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus was ministering to the earthly church saying salvation is through us. So the place of the true intercession of Jesus, a counterfeit place was established, a counterfeit priesthood was established, a counterfeit sacrifice was established, and many other counterfeits during that time. Verse 12 says, And a host was given unto him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, it practiced, it prospered. And then verse 13. Then I heard one holy one speaking to another holy one who said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will be the vision? 
concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. In other words, how long is this power going to usurp the authority that really belongs to God and to the heavenly ministry, the heavenly sanctuary ministry, try and usurp that and create an earthly sanctuary ministry? How long is that going to last? The answer finally comes back, and he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, in Revelation chapter 14, when we read the first angel's message, fear God, giving glory, the hour of his judgment has come, that judgment hour announced in the first angel is a fulfillment of this prophecy in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. That's what the first angel is announcing. That's the judgment. It's this cleansing of the sanctuary that we read about here in Daniel chapter 8. So if we put that all on the chart, this is what we find. Of course, you've got Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and then if you look at Daniel chapter 8, you have a repeat of the kingdoms with some additional details that are added, including the time period. And we'll see the time periods show up here in just a moment. So when do the 2300 days or years, remember one prophetic day is equal to one literal year, when does this begin? In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, Gabriel said that 70 weeks, 490 years, were to be determined upon Daniel's people. Determined means to be cut off or measured off. This cutting off must be from some longer period of time, and the only such period referred to in the vision is the 2300 days, which means that the two periods, the 70 as well as the 2300, must have the same starting point. Are you all with me? So Gabriel says, 70 weeks, 490 literal years, is cut off from the 2,300 years. So the first 490, that period of time is for your people. It's for the Jews. That's the probationary time that God gave the Jewish people. Of course, within that time period, the Messiah was to come. Jesus did come during that time period. Not only did Jesus come, but he died and he rose again. And then for another three and a half years, the apostles focused almost exclusively on preaching to the Jews until the stoning of Stephen in 34 AD. Persecution came upon the Christians in Jerusalem. They spread out across the Roman Empire. Saul's converted, becomes Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. So that probationary time came to an end at the stoning of Stephen in 34 AD. Now, verse 9, verse 25, chapter 9, Daniel 9, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, of course the word Messiah is the Hebrew of the Greek, Christ, which means the anointed one. When was Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit? At his baptism. And he began his public ministry. Until the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks, the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. So from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there were three decrees that allowed the Jews to go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem. The first one was more concerned with the construction of the temple. Uh, that was the decree by Cyrus in 536. There was another decree by Darius in 519, and this was really a renewal of the previous decree. But here's the one that's so significant. Artaxerxes in 457 BC. That's the starting point. 457 BC. We go forward from 457 B.C., we go forward the 69 weeks or the 483 years. We end in 27 A.D., the baptism of Jesus. Another three and a half years is 31 A.D. That's the death of Christ. 
And then we go another three and a half years, that's 34 AD, and that's the stoning of Stephen. That's the end of that probationary time period that had been given to the Jews. So there it is on the chart. 457, the baptism is 27 AD, that's the 483 years. There's one more week left. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, he, Christ, shall confirm the covenant, the covenant made with the Jews, for one week, seven years. And in the midst of the week, he shall call sacrifice and oblations to cease. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil in the temple? It was rent from top to bottom. It came to an end. No need to sacrifice lambs anymore. Thus, we see an exact fulfillment in the midst of the week, three and a half years after the baptism of Jesus, Jesus dies, sacrifices come to an end, and then we have three and a half years, and then probationary time ends for the Jewish people. So that, that's pretty clear. So on the chart, we see 457 B.C., that's the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Probation ends for the Jewish people in 34 A.D. Now having said that, can Jews still be saved? Absolutely. There were many even of the priests that believed. But as a people, as a nation, their probationary time came to an end in 34. Then we add the rest of the 2300 days, and we end on the date 1844. Very significant date. Very significant date, especially as it relates to the three angels' messages. Okay, here it is on the chart. You can see it. If we line up chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, and we get the time periods from chapter 9, it makes perfect sense. It all fits together perfectly. Babylon ruled from 605 to 539. You have Medo-Persia, 539 to 331. You have Greece, 331 to 138. You have Rome, 168 to 476 AD. Divided Rome, 476. You have the rise of the papal power, 538. And you have the end of the 2300 days, the beginning of the judgment or the cleansing, 1844. There it is. That's a solid foundation. What Adventists have been preaching for more than 150 years is solidly Bible-based, as clear as clear can be. There it is. Daniel makes it plain. Wonderful. Now, verse 14 says, And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. A work of cleansing. Now, as mentioned before, you've got a cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. You've got a cleansing of the church. You've got a cleansing of the individual. That's all part of this judgment hour cleansing message. According to Daniel 8.14, the great heavenly day of atonement started in 1844 when Jesus began his final ministration on behalf of the repentant sinner. This special work of cleansing or judgment is referenced several times in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to look at one of my favorite chapters in Revelation chapter, well, it's chapter 10. There it is. We're going to read this chapter quickly. This is an incredible chapter, especially for Adventists. Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 1, John writes, And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with the cloud. Daniel talks about one likened to the Son of Man, surrounded by a cloud, a cloud of angels. He had a rainbow upon his head. It's interesting that God the Father in Revelation chapter 4 has a rainbow about his throne Jesus described as having a rainbow. It's a very special. Remember the word angel there is angelos. We're not always referring to an angel as being a being with wings. Jesus is referred to as Michael the archangel. He is the arch ruler of the angels. He's the messenger. So here we have this special being, I believe it's Christ, bringing a message. 
It says a rainbow was about his head. His face shined like the sun. That's Revelation 1. His feet like pillars of fire. Again, that's a description of Jesus in Revelation 1. Verse 2. He had a little book that was open in his hand, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the land. Now, what is this little book that's open in the angel's hand? Well, we understand that to be the book of Daniel. The reason it's open means that at some point it probably was closed. And if you get to the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel is told, seal up the book, seal up the vision, for it is the time of the end. But now in Revelation chapter 10, the little book is open. And the interesting thing about this book is, number one, it's little. It's a prophetic book, and it has a mysterious time prophecy that was not fully understood until after the event passed. So the little book is the book of Daniel, open in the angel's hand. It sets his one foot upon the earth. The sea represents a populated area. The earth represents a sparsely populated area. This message was especially preached in the United States, a sparsely populated area, comparatively speaking to Europe at the time. And then it goes on to the next verse, verse 3. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Christ is the voice of the lion. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voice. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voice, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things that the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Isn't that interesting? Why would God reveal something only to say, oh, John, don't write that down? Unless there is a lesson in that that God is wanting us to know. Could it be that this is describing an experience that was not fully understood. It was as if something was hidden until they went through an experience. Well, we find that's the case as we read on. Okay, verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing upon the sea and upon the land raised his hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, notice the next part, who created the heavens and the things that are therein, the earth and the things that are therein, and the sea and the things that are therein. The first angel says, fear God, give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who what? Made the heavens and the earth and the fountains of water. Then he goes on and says that there should be delay or time no longer. Again, this little open book in the angel's hand has this mysterious time prophecy, but it's being fulfilled. Something is about to happen as described here. Verse 7 says, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God will be finished, as he has declared unto his servants the prophets. Wow, what a verse. So there's something about this little book that's open in the angel's hand that has this mysterious prophecy that'll be fulfilled or understood when the seventh trumpet begins to sound. Now, do you know what the sounding of the seventh trumpet is? Very important, you find it in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, and here's the verse. Verse 15, Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded. And what happened? There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Isn't that connected somehow to the judgment? Because in Daniel 7, it says that one likened to the Son of Man, Jesus, entered in before the Father, and he was given dominion and power in the kingdoms of this earth. Ah, so we're talking about a similar time period here. 
And then if we read on, still under the sounding of the seventh trumpet, verse 19 says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and what was seen in the temple? The Ark of the Covenant. So the events described under the sounding of the seventh trumpet is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary that parallels with what we read in Daniel chapter 7. It's talking about this pre-advent or this investigative judgment, this work of cleansing. And then we find in verse 8, then the voice, this is back in Revelation 10, then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel standing upon the sea and the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said, take it and do what? Eat the little book. He says, it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And sure enough, it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was bitter. What does it mean to eat the book? It means to study the book. It means to receive the book. Jesus said, Accept you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no life in you. And many people were offended. Many of them left. Jesus said to the disciples, You also going to go? And said, Lord, we have nowhere to go. But this is a hard saying. And then Jesus said, The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you. That is spirit. That is life. To eat the flesh is to receive the word. So John here is playing the part of the early Adventist believers, the early Advent believers. They were the ones who were studying the little book of Daniel. They realized that there was something significant happening around 1844. They thought the sanctuary that had to be cleansed was the earth, and so they thought it would be cleansed by fire when Jesus comes the second time. But for some reason they missed, as if God almost hid their eyes for his purpose, they missed the truth that there is a heavenly sanctuary that's being cleansed. They missed the truth about the church being cleansed of error and standing upon Bible truth. Nevertheless, it was prophesied here in Revelation 10 that they would have that sweet experience believing that Jesus was soon to come, but when Jesus didn't come, they were bitterly disappointed. Ah, but you've got to read the next verse. Verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy again. Now remember, John is playing the part of the early Adventist believers. He said to me, you must prophesy again before or about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The first angel's message goes to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So here we have Revelation chapter 10, a clear description of the early Adventist believers. That's their experience. This is 1844. And the message is given, you must prophesy again. And then we find the message that is to be prophesied is the three angels' messages of Revelation chapter 14. Now, when you read the Bible, of course, it's divided up in chapters and Revelation divided into chapters. And for the most part, they did a good job in dividing the book into different sections. But I think in this case, Revelation chapter 11 verse 1 really belongs in Revelation 10 because it gives context. You see, this is what Revelation 11 1 says. Then I was given a read... And I was told, I read like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying to me, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who were worship therein. Now what does that mean? After he's told that he must prophesy again, he had this bitter experience, he needs to prophesy to every nation, kid, to tongue, and people, and then suddenly he said, oh, by the way, there's some measuring taking place. The temple's being measured. The people who are worshiping in the temple is being measured. Measured. What is this measuring? 
Well, when I want to measure something, I take an absolute standard like a measuring tape. I want to me measure how wide this podium is. I have to put a measuring tape on and I compare the podium with the actual standard. In other words, I am judging. I'm comparing. So what's been described in Revelation chapter 11, 1 is a judgment or a measuring or a cleansing that is taking place after that sweet, bitter experience that the early Adventists went through. That's this judgment hour message that has to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. All right. When this work of cleansing in the heavenly sanctuary is complete, the work of cleansing in the church will also be complete. Then the decree will go forth that closes human probation and Jesus will come back again. Revelation 22.11 says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. Jesus says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according to his work shall be. So friends, we are living in a special time of measuring, a special time of cleansing, a special time of judgment. Now I remember as a kid, hearing this message, and I got real nervous. I remember thinking to myself, oh Lord, please, just uh, don't let my name come up right now in the judgment. Just give me a chance to at least go home and say my prayers before I get to bed, before my name comes up in the judgment. It was a scary thought that there's this big book in heaven and God's going through and my name happens to pop up because wherever it is in the alphabet and there it is and God says, oh man, he's doing a lot of bad things here. Uh, what, what are we going to do? Kind of a scary thing like going before a judge. But I want you to look at this verse from the standpoint of measuring. Measuring. Growing up as a kid, I was afraid of this judgment. I didn't quite understand what it was. But there was a thing I liked to do. There was something I liked to do. And that was to measure myself with my father. As a little guy, I would always come up close to him. And I'd stand and see, oh man, he's still a little taller. But I'm, I'm getting taller. And I'd come from time to time to be measured. And every night again, I'd look and say, sure enough, I'm, I'm growing. I'm growing. And, and one day I measured with my dad. And what do you know? He was shorter than me. And if you actually see my dad, he's quite a bit shorter than me. He left that long ago. But there is a joy in measuring. You see, here's the experience that Jesus wants you and I to have. The heavenly sanctuary is open. And Jesus says, the measuring is taking place. Come, come be measured. And as we come before Jesus, we say, Lord, measure me. Reveal to me those areas of character that you want to change that I need to let go of. And by God's grace, we let go of that. And we come back the next day to be measured. And we say, Lord, you know what? I've seen a little growth. I, I actually was able to control my temper yesterday. Or Lord, remember that person said that? And normally I would, but Lord, you, you're doing something. There is some growth happening. It gets exciting. It's exciting to experience spiritual growth. Jesus says, come be measured. And you know, friends, as long as you're coming to Jesus to be measured on a regular basis, you have no fear of the judgment. Because he who has started a good work in you has promised to be faithful to complete it. The problem is we stop coming to Jesus. 
We stop coming into the sanctuary saying, Lord, please do in me a work that I cannot do for myself. But if we are faithfully surrendering to Jesus, seeking his presence, seeking his spirit, we can have confidence in the judgment because Jesus is our advocate before the Father. And he covers us with his robe of righteousness. You see, we can be measured. The sanctuary is still open. And the message has to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Come, come, while there's time, come, come to Jesus. Allow Jesus to do a cleansing work in your heart, in your life, to transform you, to fill you. Come to Jesus. In closing then, what are the practical steps that we need to take to be involved in this investigative judgment, this cleansing that Jesus is doing. Number one, confess your sins. Confess your sins every day to Jesus. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Amen. Number two, surrender. Surrender your will to God. Now, in the little book, Steps to Christ, we are told that the surrender of self requires a battle, but the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. So things will come in our hearts and lives, and it'll be a struggle for us to let it go, but you ask Jesus to give you strength. You say, Lord, I can't let this go, but I'm trusting that you can help me let this go. And we can surrender more and more to Jesus. And thirdly, we need to abide in Christ, moment by moment, day by day. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abide in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In the book, The Upward Look, consecration is a very simple thing when brought daily into our individual life and practice. We shall know far more by consecration than by trusting to an experience. Each day, each hour, let the heart go out after God. Here I am, Lord, thy property. Take me, use me today. I lay all my plans at thy feet. I will have no way of my own in the matter. My time is thine. My whole life is thine. Let the heart be constantly going forth to God for strength and for grace every moment. Friends, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. We need not fear the judgment. We can boldly come before the throne of grace and say, Lord, reveal to me that which I need to let go of. And Lord, please do a work in me that only you can do. Fear God. Give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are so excited that heaven is open and that the sanctuary is open wide. And Lord, you're inviting us individually to come to you personally and say, Lord, please forgive me for my sins. Lord, please, I commit myself to you. I surrender my will. Please, Lord, help me to abide in you today and tomorrow and every day. And Lord, just as surely as we do this, you have promised that we are safe and secure in your hand. We need not fear because we are connected to you. Lord, thank you for this good news of the judgment. And this is a message that needs to go to all the world and help us, Lord, to do what we can to live this message and share this message because Jesus is soon to come. 
And we long for that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.